plastic instability, uh, there are various forms, but the, the simplest version is you have some sort of elastic body and you apply some sort of deformation to it, something very simple, you compress it or you extend it, and at first what will happen is that it just follows that uh, applied deformation. So you push it and it gets a bit shorter. But then past a certain threshold, it will transition into some completely different shape, and that's an elastic instability. The really classic example is Euler buckling. So you have a column and you push on it, and at first it gets a little bit shorter, and then once you push a certain amount, it buckles outwards dramatically. Um, but there are many, many more examples than just that. So, for example, one I've been working on recently is the ballooning instability. If you have a cylindrical party balloon and you start to inflate it, then at first it inflates homogeneously, but then once you inflate it past a certain threshold, what you'll see is that it inflates at one end and not the other. And then this bulge kind of propagates down the balloon as you continue to inflate it. Um, and it starts to have this kind of string of sausages type morphology. Uh, and you can try that with any party balloon of your own. Um, and so uh, I'm very interested in elastic instabilities. But for me, what I've been interested in is the connection between elastic instabilities and soft materials. So normally elastic instabilities like buckling have been thought about as failure modes. Because if you've got a stiff material and you go through a big dramatic shape change with instability, it normally snaps or it fractures, it breaks, and that's the end of the story. But with a soft material, one that can sustain a very large strain, something like rubber or skin or brain tissue, you could undergo a huge strain like that and survive. And suddenly that makes these instabilities interesting, useful things, rather, which you can use to achieve interesting shape changes, rather than something you're only trying to avoid. Um, and what's more, um, these things are all rooted in geometry, and if you've got the ability to change shape a lot, then also you get a whole set of new instabilities. And there's a twofold reason why you, soft materials and instabilities is a good combination. You have more and more interesting instabilities, and you survive them, so they're useful. Um, and so uh, I actually started in this line in biology. So I was trying to understand how organs develop. Um, that was kind of the question. Um, and we realised you know, there was an intersection between that question and mechanics, where several organs uh, develop their complicated shapes by using elastic instabilities. Um, and the one I've studied the most is the brain. Um, so the brain has this wonderful convoluted outside shape, like we all know that shape. And the question is in developmental biology, where does that shape come from? How do you achieve that shape? Um, and there are all sorts of complicated theories out there. And to give you some sense of it, like a standard biological theory would be that some chemistry happens on the surface of the developing brain, which says here will be mountains and here will be valleys. And then the mountains grow more and the valleys grow less. And that gives you rise to the complex shape. Um, but what we put forward was an alternative proposal where we said, OK, the, the brain is basically a layered structure. It's all soft, solid material, but it's layered. The outside layer called the cerebral cortex is quite distinct to what's inside. Um, and what happens is the outside layer simply grows and gets bigger, but homogeneously. So if you imagine that the brain were a sphere, then that spherical shell on the outside that's growing, if it was dissected away and it was growing without being adhered to the inside material, it would just turn into a bigger sphere. But because it is tethered to the inside material, then it buckles and crumples, and that's an elastic instability from which this wonderful convoluted shape emerges. And there's a kind of a theory there, one of the useful things, not a theory, uh, a feature there, a recurring feature, which is that one of the cool things about elastic instabilities is that they make shapes that are more complicated. So it's a transition from a simple shape to a complicated shape, always. Um, and so it gives you a route to move uh, 
in application uh, or in developmental biology from a simple shape to a more complicated shape. Um, there are not um, so many examples in engineering yet of elastic instabilities that have really found application. Um, uh, but for example, we're very interested at the moment in the idea that these surface instabilities, things like wrinkling and buckling on surfaces that make wrinkles, can be used to change things like wettability or optical properties. If you can develop a surface texture, then that can change all sorts of interesting properties of the surface. Um, uh, and uh, I can give you one other really nice example. Uh, this is actually not a soft material example of a elastic instability, but is in use. Uh, so if you're, if you're British, you drink a lot of tea and you have a kettle. And the thermostat in your kettle is uh, an elastically unstable object. So it's a bimetallic dome. So it's a dome with uh, two different metals, one on the outside and one on the inside. And then, you know, a bimetallic strip when it heats up will bend. Well, a bimetallic dome when it heats up will sit there and then at a certain temperature it pops and it flips through to being the other way up. And that's what turns your kettle off. It gives you a clean cut in the electric current so you don't get sparks and so forth uh, when you hit the critical temperature. Um, uh, but yes, there you go, that's a long answer. But yes, so elastic instabilities uh, and soft materials. Uh, for me, it really started in biology um, uh, and now is pushing through into engineering. So I'd like to go back to the argument. You already argued that the, the, the shape already, the folds in the human brain is much simpler and that's what you argue about. If you get to more about how we make sure this assumption is true, the, the formation of the shape, especially if we speak in biological terms here, how we make sure the understanding, the explanation is really um, maybe true? Yeah, no, so, uh, so there are different things you can do. The kind of gold standard evidence, which I must honestly admit is not currently in place for the brain, uh, but it is in place for some other systems, um, is you do a dissection experiment during development. Um, and so if you imagine if you had a developing brain that had just formed some gyri and sulky on its top surface, if you then dissected out the cerebral cortex, the top layer, and it relaxed to being a flat thing, you would then know it was only folded because it was held in that configuration. Whereas if when you dissected out, it remained in its complicated folded shape, then the idea it was having that because it was being constrained wouldn't really make any sense. So that's the kind of gold standard uh, evidence, uh, is, is dissection evidence. Um, uh, and there is good evidence of that type, for example, from the looping of the gut and the development of villi in the gut, although the evidence in the brain, um, well, it's much harder to do experiments on the brain, roughly speaking. These, these convoluted brains only form in animals that you don't really want to do experiments on. Um, um, the other thing you can do is uh, look for a match. So uh, you solve the elasticity problem or the mechanics problem and you see what shape it predicts and you see how well it matches the observed structure um, and how much of it it can explain. Um, and so what we saw is that the physical model explains, for example, the size of the folds uh, across the entire animal kingdom. Um, and so that was kind of quite strong evidence that this was the right way of thinking about it. Um, uh, and another nice feature is that the more accurate you make the model, um, which in our case would say the more of the kind of brain geometry you put into it. So, so your brain's not a sphere. It's maybe more like a rugby ball shape. And actually it's a bit, no. And, and the more of that kind of actual geometry of the brain you put in, you start to recover features in the folding pattern that you would expect to see. So everyone has the big fold down the middle. Everyone has a fold here and here. 
And you find that as you match the macroscopic geometry of the brain, the instability then starts to produce features you would hope to see. So that's quite suggestive. Um, and the one other thing I would say, which I think is kind of quite strong evidence, um, although, well, no, it's not argument, it's not evidence, um, is that the cases where we know that instabilities are important, these are cases where we can also tell an interesting evolutionary story, where we can see why that 